0: What was his name? I don't know. I don't recall. Tim gazed out of the tinted window of the Greyhound bus, somewhat distracted by his reflection staring back at him. Yet the feeling of excitement that he felt fluttering around in his stomach could not be tempered. His eyes darted back and forth as he tried to take in as much as he could of the towering and glowing buildings that surrounded him. He had never seen such a sight, especially in his hometown of Glenwood, Iowa. Now, there the most common landmarks were sprawling fields of corn that were being tended to by local farmers. Tim's spectacular visual tour of Chicago was rudely interrupted as the bus pulled into the station. He had been on the bus for hours as he was coming from visiting his aunt up in Michigan for the holidays. The bus was packed with people who were coughing, snoring, or tending to their crying children. He was more than ready to get some fresh air and stretch his legs. His final destination was still hours away, and he was starving. The bus would not be departing from Chicago for a couple more hours. He would walk around the city a bit to see if he could find a place to grab a bite to eat. As he walked through the station, he spotted a bank of lockers. He decided to store his duffel bag so as to be unencumbered for his brief walking tour of the city of broad shoulders. He mashed his bag into one of the small lockers, slammed the metal door shut, and deposited a dime into the small slot. He turned the key until he heard it click, and he pulled it out and stuck it into the pocket of his jeans. He spotted the exit sign of the station and made his way over and out. The cold January air filled his lungs as he took in a deep breath. He stopped and buttoned up his blue and white checkered flannel jacket, And shoved his hands into his pockets and simply stood there, taking it all in. He had never seen such hustle and bustle, as people briskly walking by him without saying a word. He couldn't believe how alive the city was at this time of night. It was sensory overload. His mop of dirty blonde hair was mussed by the cold, stiff breeze that seemed to be swirling around him in circles. Yeah, he was definitely out of his element After all, he was just a farm boy from Iowa. He looked down at his waist at the oversized Model T belt buckle he was wearing. There was no question about it. He stuck out like a sore thumb amongst the men in fedoras and gray and black overcoats that seemed to pass him by in a seemingly never-ending stream of humanity. He looked up at the street sign affixed to the light pole and read it to himself and then said it aloud before leaving to explore for a bit. Clark Street thinking that would help him recall if he got a bit too far afoot. He gazed across the busy street and spotted a tavern and thought a beer sounded like a wonderful idea, but he doubted very much that they would serve a 17-year-old kid who looked like he had just fallen off a tractor. As he continued to check out his surroundings, a green Oldsmobile station wagon was slowly approaching as if the driver was intending on parking. The car slowly crept forward finally coming to a halt directly in front of him. He bent over slightly at the waist so as to be able to see inside of the vehicle. He peered in and saw a heavy-set man in a brown leather jacket leaning over towards the passenger side door, his arm moving in a small circular motion. The window began to retract into the car door. Hey kid, you lost or something? Tim chuckled. Not exactly. I'm, uh, waiting on my bus to leave. I've got a couple of hours before we take off. Say, uh, do you know anywhere I can grab some food around here? The man replied. Sure I do. Hop in and I'll give you a lift. Shit, maybe I'll even join you. I'll drop you right back off here when we're done. Tim looked at the man. Really? Thanks, man, because, uh, I have no fucking idea where I'm at. I'm not from around here. Come on, get in. You're letting all the cold air into my car. Tim stepped off the curb and reached for the door handle, hesitating briefly as a feeling of uneasiness had surfaced in his gut. But his mind won out. I'm starving and I'm cold, and this guy seems nice enough. And with that, he reached out to press the button on the door handle and pulled the car door open. He slid into the passenger seat and pulled the heavy door shut. He looked over at the driver, suddenly feeling overwhelmed with nervous anxiety. He sensed something was off, either with this guy or this situation, something. He looked over at the man, his face covered with two-day-old stubble, his hair oily and unkempt. He noticed a badge, on the bench seat between them. You a cop? The man flashed a toothy grin and said, Nah, kid. I definitely ain't a cop. January 2nd, 1972 would be the last time that Timothy Jack McCoy, born May 14th, 1955 in Council Bluffs, Iowa would ever be seen by those who loved him, or anyone else for that matter, ever again. He was John Wayne Gacy's first victim, and yes, he most certainly had a name. To the best of my knowledge, I parked on Clark Street, and then after parking on Clark Street, I got out and I was walking around, just walking around. That was standing it. outside there. I just said, alone. will him, I guess. I don't know if he came to me and and asked me a question about where the street or what it was. I don't know how the conversation got started. It, yeah. he, he was explaining that he had time to kill. I thought it was just fucking around. He said he had time to kill. Yeah, because he said something about he had missed his bus or he was laid over waiting for a bus until noon. What he you like? I think about 19 or 20 years old, blonde-headed blonde-headed with blue eyes. He had a thick Levi's on and a, a large belt buckle on. Blue and white checks or, or green and white checks. Sort of like a lumberjack jacket type thing. It would have to be a green old mobile space wagon. Yeah, because I think I still had the, the first old mobile that I had got since I come out of the institution. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 12. Terminus Aquo. We left off last episode with Gacy being charged with the abduction and murder of Rob Peast. He'd already been in custody stemming from the weed bust. Shortly after he was arrested, he was taken to the hospital after he feigned having a heart attack was kept at bay there for several hours while the Desplaines police raced to get a warrant to gain access to Gacy's house for the second time during the 10 days that Gacy was being investigated. He was formally charged while still at the hospital and then was transported back to the station to be processed with regards to the upgraded charges. Now at this time, Amarante was not at the hospital with his client, nor was he at the police station waiting for Gacy to be brought back for questioning. We have no clear understanding of where either Amaranti or Stevens, his other lawyer at the time, was during this time frame. But we do know that the Disciplines Police saw this as a golden opportunity to take a run at Gacy to see what he'd give up. So they initially did not call either of his lawyers to let them know that their client had been charged on the peace case. The fact still remains that in light of the absolutely unbelievable disclosures made by Gacy to both Amarante and Stevens in the early morning hours of the 21st, and that both attorneys clearly believed their client to be at the very least mentally unstable, and at worst, the most horrific killer in the history of the United States at that point, that they left Gacy twisting in the wind by not being an eyeshot of him, from the moment that he was arrested at 12.15 p.m. and for every moment thereafter is absolutely unbelievable. Amaranti stating that he advised his client to shut his mouth on multiple occasions when he was in the station at around 3 in the afternoon is simply not sufficient in terms of protecting his client from himself and from interrogation. Because at that time, Gacy was officially in custody. And once a defendant is in custody, he or she is fair game to be questioned by law enforcement up until the moment that that defendant or their lawyer asserts their rights and informs law enforcement that they will not be giving any statement without their lawyer being present. Here, that did not happen until it was simply too late. Actually, it never happened because after Gacy waives his Miranda rights and makes incriminating statements against himself in the first interrogation with Albrecht and the boys, Amaranti and Stevens, during the next four statements, allow their client to speak freely to the police, and at that point, the die is cast, and there is no hope of being able to have any of these statements suppressed in the future. Now, again, I need to be abundantly clear that the intent of this portion of the narrative is not being presented in such a way that I am advocating that Gacy should have walked No, what I'm pointing out is that in light of the planted and fabricated evidence that everything that went down had to go down just so in order for that malfeasance by the police not to be discovered, because if it had, we would be talking about a very different result in the Gacy case, one in which it didn't end with Gacy being put to death by lethal injection, but instead we would be digging in on how law enforcement's actions in this case resulted in one of the most horrific humans to ever take a breath on this planet to walking free. And the impact that particular scenario would have had on society and my God, the victims' families. Can you imagine being in Bill Kunkel's shoes, facing the families of all the known victims and trying to explain to them the unexplainable which is how the man who tortured and murdered their children had just walked out of the courtroom a free man. I can't. I can't imagine it. That conversation would haunt me for the rest of my days. This case, by the way of the malfeasance by the police that we've uncovered, has become a cautionary tale, a nightmarish review of sorts, of what very easily could have been But before I can just run through the whys and the hows of just exactly how close the case against Gacy was to falling apart at the seams, and I know you're probably asking yourself, but Bob, they found 27 bodies buried in the crawl space and the creep confessed. How the hell could the case have fallen apart? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's your favorite time and it's my favorite time. constitutional law 101 time. So, we all know that the Founding Fathers drafted up the Constitution and got it signed in September of 1777. In June of 1778, the document became the official framework of our government, as it had finally been ratified by nine of the 13 then-states that existed. This, as you can imagine, was no easy task because they were literally forming a new government, which included everything we needed to have in place in order to form a new country. Just think about the issues that we as citizens bicker amongst ourselves about today and try to imagine the level of debate that occurred when they were trying to figure out the whole damn system of government. So obviously there were items that were not contemplated during the original drafting of the constitution that they realized had to be included And those additions to the Constitution were called amendments. And the first 10 of those amendments were called the Bill of Rights. So in December of 1791, those were ratified. And on that day, our rights as citizens of this country were born. Now, I'm not going to torture and bore the shit out of you going through all of the amendments one by one. Instead, I will focus only on the ones that are relevant to what's at hand here. And that's the 4th, the 5th, and the 6th. You should walk away from this podcast understanding that when a defendant is freed from prosecution of the crime that they are alleged to have committed based on a motion to suppress or a motion to quash, that it was not based on a technicality, but instead was based on a constitutional violation of that person's civil rights. Defense motions challenging police conduct that took place during an arrest are an absolute necessity defense attorneys' primary function to make sure that when law enforcement is investigating and ultimately arresting a person for a crime that they allegedly committed, that they did not violate that person's constitutional rights in order to do so. Defense attorneys without question police the police. Plain and simple. The Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments are the only protections we have as citizens that stop us from living in a totalitarian police state. So when you see a bad guy walk next time, and you hear that he walked because certain evidence was suppressed, and you think to yourself, shit, the cops fucked up, instead of, shit, they got off on a damn technicality, well, then I've accomplished my mission. Okay, I've stepped down off my soapbox. So the Fourth Amendment states... The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall be issued, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the places to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Everything I just read to you should be ringing bells left and right. We have dug in on literally every aspect of the 4th thus far during the podcast. The searches, the complaints for warrant, the specificity required in the warrants, the penalty for violating the provisions of this amendment, suppression of the evidence that was illegally obtained. The 5th reads like this. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment of indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be put twice in jeopardy of life and limb. Nor shall they be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Nor Shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation? So, there's a lot of rights established in the 5th. But what we are concerning ourselves with is the right against self-incrimination. When you hear about people pleading or taking the 5th, this is exactly what they are speaking of. What this right established is the right of an arrestee to shut the fuck up. They cannot be compelled by law enforcement to make a statement against themselves. So this particular portion of the amendment needed some fleshing out. And like all statutes, which are the actual written laws, it took a case that was prosecuted, a defendant that was convicted, and a lawyer that filed an appeal, essentially arguing that the Constitution was violated by the police, and then a higher court agreeing or disagreeing with that lawyer about the issue at hand in order for the fleshing out to take place. When an appellate court or the Supreme Court clarifies an issue of law that has not been previously clarified, it is called setting legal precedent. Remember that every word in a statute is up for debate. It's a matter of interpretation. And what lawyers actually do in a nutshell is argue how those words should be interpreted. So prosecutors argue on behalf of the government that the words contained in statutes should favor the state or federal government, while defense attorneys argue that those very same words should favor the citizens. So the case that did exactly that for the Fifth Amendment was Miranda versus Arizona. In 1966, Miranda was arrested in his home and was taken back to the station where the complaining witness picked him out of a lineup. After the lineup, he was interrogated by the police for two hours, which resulted in a written and signed confession. At trial, the oral and written confessions were entered into evidence, which means that the jury was able to consider it when they were deliberating. He was convicted of kidnapping and rape and was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison for each count. He appealed it and went up to the Supreme Court of Arizona. They denied his appeal, stating that his constitutional rights had not been violated. His lawyer then filed for a writ of certiori, which is basically applying for the United States Supreme Court to hear the case. They took it on. This case was argued, and the Supreme Court ruled. This is what they held. Quote, There can be no doubt that the Fifth Amendment privilege is available outside of the criminal court proceedings and serves to protect persons in all settings in which their freedom of action is curtailed in any significant way, or from being compelled to incriminate themselves as such. The prosecution may not use statements, whether exculpatory or inculpatory, stemming from a custodial interrogation of the defendant, unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure the privilege against self-incrimination. By custodial interrogation, we mean questioning initiated by law enforcement officers after a person has been taken into custody or otherwise deprived of his freedom of action in any significant way. End quote. The Supreme Court didn't stop there. They continued, quote, without proper safeguards, the process of an in-custody interrogation of persons suspected or accused of crime contains inherently compelling pressures, which work to undermine the individual's will to resist. And to compel him to speak where he would otherwise do so freely. Therefore, a defendant must be warned prior to any questioning that he has the right to remain silent, that anything that he says can and will be used against him in a court of law, and that he has the right to the presence of an attorney. And finally, that if he can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed for him prior to any questioning if he so desires. End quote. So there it is. That case became the law of the land in 1966 and has remained in effect ever since. So when you hear about a Miranda warning being given to someone in custody, this is what they're talking about and that is how it came to be. Now, the overly broad Fifth Amendment has some rules that have to be followed by the police, namely that they have to advise the accused of their rights before they can start grilling them. And if they don't follow them, the statement of the accused will be suppressed. Harsh penalty. And it's that way because it's a mandate that is in place for a reason, and it must be followed by the cops. As they say in my biz, the severity of potentially losing evidence, or worse, having the arrest being quashed, gives the rules teeth. By the way, if you're wondering what happened with Miranda Well, the Supreme Court overturned his conviction, sent the case back down to the trial court, and Miranda was tried again. Except this time, the state couldn't introduce his statements into evidence. Guess what? The asshole was still convicted, justice prevailed, and an incredibly important law was created the Miranda Warning. Finally, we have the Sixth Amendment which states, quote, "...in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy trial and a public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district where the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, and to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have assistance of counsel for his defense. Again, a ton of laws were set forth in this amendment. This single amendment created the criminal justice system as we know it from the ground up. What we are focusing on, however, is the last clause about assistance of counsel. Those seven words created an absolute right for every defendant to have assistance of counsel through every stage of the criminal proceedings. Again, as with every amendment, the law has to be applied first to see what in the hell it meant, though. And as we progress through our history as a country, what exactly it meant was sorted out by legal precedent, much like the fifth. The sixth has a watershed case that established how the amendment was to be interpreted. That case was Gideon v. Wainwright. In that case, Clarence Earl Gideon was arrested in Florida in 1961, was charged with a felony for breaking and entering. When Mr. Gideon appeared in court, he asked the judge to appoint counsel for him as he lacked the money to hire an attorney on his own. The judge told him that under Florida law, he could only appoint him a lawyer if he was charged with a capital crime. Here, Gideon was only charged with a felony offense, so he had no right to appoint counsel. And as such, he was forced to conduct his own defense, which he did about as well as any layman could in trial, but despite his efforts, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to five years in prison. Gideon appealed and the Supreme Court agreed again to hear the case. The court held that reason and reflection require us to recognize that in our adversary system of criminal justice, any person hailed into court who is too poor to hire a lawyer cannot be assured a fair trial unless counsel is provided for him. This seems to be an obvious truth. The right of one charged with crime to counsel may not be deemed fundamental and essential in some countries, but it is in ours. From the very beginning, our state and national constitutions and laws have laid great emphasis on procedural and substantive safeguards designed to assure fair trials before impartial tribunals in which every defendant stands equal before the law. This noble ideal cannot be realized if the poor man charged with a crime has to efface his accusers without a lawyer to assist him. Lawyers are fundamentally essential to a fair hearing. Therefore, they must be provided to criminal defendants who cannot afford the cost of representation on their own. So Gideon did away with the defendants who had no money being forced to go into a court of law and defend their life and liberty at trial having absolutely no idea what they were doing. I can't even begin to imagine how many innocent defendants were convicted prior to Gideon. That number must have been massive. So there you go, lesson over. I hope it wasn't too painful because now what happened with Amarante and Stevens and the four confessions that happened after the first confession have context When I stated that Gacy had been abandoned by his attorneys, that they had basically become agents of the state when they encouraged their client to fess up, this is what I was talking about. His right to counsel. He essentially sat in that room without anyone representing him. Again, it was Gacy. He was a despicable human being and a monster. I get it. But that damn Constitution trumps that. Not only for Gacy but much more importantly, for all of us. I mean, after all, I am a defense attorney, so no matter how vile I find a particular human being to be, I have an undying allegiance to the Constitution. Remember, when I started this podcast, I thought I was doing a deep dive on a case where the facts were in stone, already known. I didn't anticipate that I would be confronted with the strange dichotomy of having to microscopically examine both the actions of the state and the defense when trying to determine precisely how everything actually went down. Trust me, this is very challenging for me. I anticipated that I was just going to be able to shit all over the creep for the entirety of the podcast, not having to reconcile my absolute vitriol for the man with the fact that nearly every conceivable constitutional right he had was violated. Now that you have all this knowledge about constitutional law, ask yourself this. Would 24-7 surveillance by the police be considered to be depriving Gacy of his freedom of action in any way, thereby triggering the need for a Miranda warning? Granted, Gacy's freedom of action included stalking, grooming, and killing innocent young men, so we're thankful that he was under the microscope 24-7. But that's not the question I'm asking. What I'm asking is, should he have been given his Miranda warnings at the onset of surveillance? I would argue yes, because he was essentially in police custody. Now, the entire reason of this exercise is going back to the point that was made last episode that when Stevens and Amaranti let their client continue to confess time and time again after his initial statement, which made it impossible for them to be able to argue any of the above in order to suppress the first statement. It also took away their ability to be able to negotiate for, say, Gacy's life in exchange for information about the location of the victims that weren't buried on the property. So for reasons unknown, They didn't record Gacy's statements, even though they had the ability to do so. And this is somewhat problematic because what happens in a situation like that is that whatever cop is taking the statement is having to go through his notes when he's writing his report, which means what you're getting is the interpretation of what was said according to that cop that's writing the report as opposed to a recording wherein you're hearing exactly what was said. Fortunately for us, as I've told you previously, much of what is contained in the Gacy tapes is in lockstep with what Gacy told the cops in all of his confessions. After all, it was these very statements that my father was reviewing with Gacy throughout the course of the recordings. Now, let's start digging in with what the creep told the boys of the Delta team in the early morning hours of December 22nd. This is the written report of Gacy's first statement as it was heard by Mike Albrecht. Gacy was brought back to the Displains Police Station from Holy Family Hospital at 2230 hours on December 21st, 1978. Upon arriving at the station, Gacy was escorted to one of the security areas by officers Albrecht and Hackmeister. In the security room, Gacy was searched by a reporting officer. Gacy was then read his rights under Miranda and asked if he understood those rights. Gacy indicated that he understood his rights, was then given a copy of the Miranda waiver and asked to orally read each statement on the waiver and place his initials after each statement. Gacy complied and signed the Miranda waiver, also indicating the date and time, and then giving it back to the reporting officer. This was witnessed by officers Hackmeister and Albrecht. Hackmeister was then momentarily called out of the security room. The following is a summary of the statement and interview with John Gacy at the above date and time. Gacy then started speaking for reporting officer, and he stated that he knew it was all going to end ever since he spoke with his attorneys the night before. Gacy asked if we had been in the crawl space. Reporting officer answered affirmatively to Gacy. Gacy then said that's what the lime was for. Reporting officer asked him what was the lime for. Gacy replied the lime was for the sewage dampness, He then hesitated and said, what did we find there? Gacy then said he had four Johns and he doesn't know all the personalities. Reporting officer asked Gacy how many bodies are in the crawl space. Gacy replied that he wasn't sure how many bodies were in the crawl space. Reporting officer then asked Gacy about the boy from Nissan Pharmacy, if he was in the crawl space. He said, no, he's not there, but he would have a hard time pinpointing where he is but he could find it. Officer Hackmeister then came back into the room, joining John Gacy and the reporting officer. When Officer Hackmeister entered the room, Gacy looked at Hackmeister and said to him, David, I want to clear the air. I know the game is over. Lime was used to cover the smell of the bodies down there, and they've been there a very long time. There are more bodies off the property. Gacy then said he is a bisexual, not homosexual. Anytime Gacy did anything in sex, he did not use force. It was always by consent. He said he never forced anybody. He's not that strong. He's unable to fight with anyone, especially with his heart condition. Gacy then asked, who else do we have in the police station? There are others involved. He was then asked how they were involved, directly or indirectly. Gacy answered, directly. They participated in it. Wow, kind of a definitive statement about Gacy having help. I wonder who he's talking about. Interviewers then asked him who was involved. Gacy answered it was his associates, several of them. He then mentioned the names Rossi and Cram. Except he didn't mention another name. Gacy asked if Cram was there now. Before being able to answer Gacy... He asked how we knew the bodies were in the crawl space. We answered Gacy by saying that these are two officers who had not seen the search warrant. Gacy then looked directly at reporting officer and said, Mike, you know I won't be in jail for very long, and I won't spend a day in jail for this. When asked to elaborate what he meant by the statement, he just shrugged and did not say anything further. Officer Schultz entered the room with Gacy and officers Hackmeister and Albrecht and asked if he wanted to speak with us. Gacy answered Schultz by saying that there was a lot that he had to say to us. At this time, Gacy indicated that he was a little chilly and all the parties immediately went into a warmer room. Officer Schultz asked Gacy if the pieced boy was in the crawl space. Momentarily, Gacy had a puzzled look on his face and Albrecht mentioned to him, you know, the boy from Nissan. He then replied, oh, I didn't know his name. No, he's not down there. He was asked where he is. He said he didn't know. I didn't transport. Gacy was asked, who did? Gacy replied that he couldn't say, but you'll find out when Leroy gets here. He knows, I told my lawyers everything last night. Officer Hackmeister then told Gacy that he didn't have to speak to us unless he wanted to. Officer Albrecht then said, John, do you recall when your dad died? Gacy answered yes. He did remember. Albrecht said to him that you weren't able to go to the funeral, were you? Gacy replied that he wasn't able to go to the funeral, that the prison officials didn't tell him about it until after his dad was buried. Then he asked if it was around the Christmas holidays. Gacy replied that it was, and that it bothered him a lot that he wasn't able to go to the funeral. Officer Albrecht then told Gacy that this is why we want to find the pieced body for the family. Gacy then said the body is at a location about an hour to an hour and a half drive from here, but that you would never find it. Albrecht said to Gacy, Well, if you just tell me where it is, and if I can't find it, I'll tell you, John. And if I can't find the body, then you were right. Officer Hackmeister then asked Gacy if the body was above ground or if it was buried. Gacy answered that it was above ground. Gacy was then asked, how did he die? Gacy replied that they were all strangled. None of them were tortured. Gacy then specifically mentioned the Piest boy, saying that he put a cord around his neck and twisted it only twice when the phone rang. When Gacy went to answer the phone, Piest was still standing in the room. When Gacy returned, Piest was on the floor in case he noticed that he had urinated all over himself. He also said that he noticed that the peace boy was convulsing, so he picked up the body, put him on the bed, and at that time, he said he felt that peace was dead. Sergeant Lang came into the room where the interview was being conducted, and he told us to move to another room. All the parties involved went to another interview room outside of the secure area of the police station. Gacy told the officers that the conversation would cease in 15 minutes. Gacy was replied to by the officers that we haven't pressured you at all, have we, John? Gacy answers, no. Everything that I've said has been voluntary. Gacy then mentioned Jack and said that Jack didn't like homosexuality. Officer Schultz then asked Gacy, but why death? Gacy replied because the boys sold their bodies for $20. They killed themselves. Officer Schultz asked Gacy, how could they strangle themselves? Gacy replied, because of what they did. They put the cords around their neck. They killed themselves. Officer Schultz asked Gacy, why didn't you bury them all in the house? He had a great plan. Gacy replied, because of his heart condition. He can't dig a grave anymore. And also, because the basement crawl space area is full. Officer Schultz then asked Gacy, what did he do to the boys? At this time, Sergeant Lang entered the room and asked if we would stop the interview, that he wanted to speak with the officers. Gacy was left in the room and the interview was concluded. So there it is. There is a ton of stuff to dig into in that statement. It's got just about everything that you would ask for in terms of a deep dive a guy absolutely zombified on 130 milligrams of Valium, a representation of Miranda warnings being given, a waiver being voluntarily signed by a guy on 130 milligrams of Valium, accomplices, multiple personalities, bodies in the crawl and on the property, putting a cord around Pete's Neck, twisting a couple times and leaving him standing there when the phone rang, convulsing on the ground upon his return, Everyone killed themselves. So, so much, except for one thing. Gacy never admitted to actually killing anyone in that statement. Let's start trying to figure out what the hell Gacy is saying on the next episode of Defense Diaries. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host defense diaries. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P O D. B-E-A-N. Check it out. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.